Hey, Tracy. Hey, Megan. How are you? Audio connected better. Oh yeah, you you sound you sound better now. Okay, good. <laughs> oh, Stuart's here too. Great. Hi, Stuart. Hello. Hi. All right, we will uh we'll go ahead and and get started here. We have a uh a, a big question with multiple par parts today. Uh largely about sodium and, and salt intake. So, here is some history and background. Let me just make sure actually that I'm recording. Yeah, I am. Okay, there we go. So history. I was in ketosis years ago without knowing and experienced missed heartbeats. This was predominantly during or after intense aerobic exercise and particularly in the heat. After working with you, this was identified as low sodium, hyponatremia. This became evident after using a glucose ketone meter that indicated I was in mild ketosis. Since then, I've added a considerable amount of salt to my diet. The missed heartbeats have mostly disappeared, but I then had a new problem of swollen ankles. This is a, pro this, this is a problem I've never been able to fix. It's very difficult to judge how much sodium to add. The absence of missed heartbeats isn't useful feedback. I do sometimes get severe cramps, mostly at night, and this seems to correlate with the lower sodium days. Right now, I'm just adding about two to 3,000 milligrams per day. But in the summer, I've added as much as 8,000 milligrams. Just in case you're wondering if I'm eating salt, no, this is sodium. So question one, is there a better way to modulate my sodium intake? The only signals my body gives me are missed heartbeats and cramps. Um, okay, so just as a little bit more context, 20, uh, if we're talking about a teaspoon of salt, obviously, you know, the, the size of the grain is going to make a difference, but a teaspoon of normal salt is around 2,300 milligrams. Um, and, and some salts are actually higher in sodium, um, even per gram. But so if, if he's intaking two to 3000 milligrams per day, mm, that's probably, you know, somewhere in the realm of a teaspoon, probably a little bit more let's call it a heaping teaspoon. Um, so as for question one, uh, you can't really rely on blood sodium levels since the body tries to keep them in a tight homeostatic range and they don't always correlate with dietary sodium. They also do tend to be lower, um, when people are in ketosis, but you can certainly look at them, you know, that that's one potentially objective way, even if it's imperfect. I generally recommend people titrate sodium and also other electrolytes up or down based off of signs and symptoms. Um, it's not, you know, the most scientific in the world, but it's kind of the, the best we have. Um, I'm not aware of a great objective way, a perfect objective way to modulate sodium intake. I think that there is a wide range and you kind of have to play with it and see where you feel and perform best. And uh, your personal optimal intake is probably going to be seasonal. As this person mentioned, he consumes more in the summer and dependent on things like, you know, how much you're sweating, which is related to seasonality. Um, and also things like how much stress you're under can, um, you know, shift hormones and also, you know, uh, dictate how much sodium you're either retaining or excreting through the kidneys. So some signs that you need more sodium, I know this person mentioned specifically the only signals are missed heartbeats and, and cramps, but some other things maybe to, to consider. Um, so muscle cramping and weakness for sure. For many people, this is kind of the easiest sign to gauge. Feeling very flu-like and off, especially when in ketosis or eating a low-carb diet. This is sometimes considered like the quote-unquote keto flu. Nausea, generally speaking, irregular heartbeats or arrhythmias urinating more than you think you should. Um, so along these lines, you can also look at urine color, but that's even going to be dependent on other factors, um, including, but not limited to sodium intake. So 
you know, it's not necessarily specific, but that is something, you know, you can kind of gauge with both your, the, the darkness of your urine color. And then also, um, you know, feeling like you're, you're going to the bathroom more than you should. Uh, headaches and an inability to concentrate can be a sign of, of not getting enough sodium, lightheadedness and low blood pressure for sure. Uh, feeling like you're hypoglycemic or, or, um, you know, low, uh, low on blood sugar, but actually not. And then also if you're craving salt, um, that can sometimes, but of course not always be, be a sign that you need more. And then signs that you need less sodium or more likely, um, maybe that you need more fluid, more hydration, more water, um, or more potassium potentially, or magnesium to kind of balance sodium. Those would be things like swelling, hypertension, excessive uh, thirst, and also having a very darkly colored urine. And, you know, I think it's worth noting that while sodium has probably been unfairly demonized, there are, I think, people who would do better on a lower sodium diet. Um, there are, I think, probably the the exception, not the norm, people who have kidney issues, for example, um, and some that do best on a higher sodium diet you know, higher being relative, but generally even, you know, outside of the context of, of keto and low carb, there does seem to be this U-shaped curve to sodium intake and mortality, but the bottom of that U or where mortality is the lowest is actually whiter and probably more uh, higher than most people would think. Question two, are there any downsides to consuming more sodium than your body needs? This is particularly an issue when I'm in and out of ketosis, meaning that my sodium requirement varies greatly and I'm tick and I typically add the same quantity of salt every day. High sodium was always associated with high blood pressure. Is that association real? Any other potential issues? Okay. This is, this is a big, <laughs> this could be a whole podcast in, in and of itself. Um, the whole sodium controversy, but a healthy body and well-functioning kidneys should do a fine job of getting rid of excess sodium. If you are taking in too much, uh, with the caveat that you uh, need to have good hydration status for the kidneys to properly function. If we're talking about reasonable amounts of sodium, somewhere within the realm of, and this is a very wide range of 2000 milligrams to 6,000 milligrams per day or so, depending on the person. And in the context of a whole foods diet, I wouldn't be concerned about that being quote unquote too much, um, unless you're experiencing some of those symptoms that we, we noted were related to too much sodium intake potentially. Um, but again, oftentimes I think it's not just too much. It's, it's not an issue of too much sodium. It's an issue of something else being, being off with your electrolyte and hydration balance. Um, if you're pushing, you know, 8,000 milligrams, nine, 10,000 milligrams of sodium, that's definitely getting up there. But for some people in ketosis and sweating a ton, um, you know, it is within the realm of, of reasonable for sure. It's worth noting that there are some associational data suggesting that salt restriction may actually have negative effects on different health outcomes, including insulin resistance in healthy people. And that 3,000 to 6,000 milligrams per day, um, some people say three to 5,000 milligrams might be the sweet spot. Uh, that that range is, is you know, not necessarily uh, specific to any kind of diet in particular. So if you're a lower carb, you're probably going to be on the higher end of that. Um, but again, it depends on what your diet looks like. Um, and it's going to be individual as well. There seems to be a subset of the population that is salt sensitive with respect to high blood pressure, meaning they have a greater chance of becoming hypertensive if their salt intake creeps up. But at least one factor with salt sensitivity is potassium intake. It's a pretty substantial factor. So oftentimes uh, when potassium, which largely comes from vegetables, is balanced with sodium in the diet, the hypertension effects of quote unquote, too much sodium go away. Also, um, a lot of these associ associational data are confounded by a population that's eating a lot of salt and processed carbohydrates simultaneously. It's worth noting that uh, the observational studies looking at what happens to things like cardiovascular outcomes, uh, which has been 
mostly um hypertension is is mostly kind of um blamed for the cardiovascular outcomes of of quote unquote too much sodium intake but those observational studies um looking at those cardiovascular outcomes with reduced sodium intake they have mixed findings and many of them are in populations that are eating standard western diets so high in in processed carbohydrates um high in calories in general and uh there's even some evidence that the health risks or lack thereof of high sodium intake might depend on one's blood glucose control. So within the realm of reasonable sodium intakes, it's a large range, but let's say kind of two to six grams daily. Um, you know, some people might say three to five, but let's, let's be a little bit more liberal. Um, for a healthy person with well-functioning kidneys who is drinking enough water and getting enough potassium, we'll talk about potassium um, momentarily, there are likely no potential issues of, of consuming that kind of reasonable amount of sodium. If those parameters aren't in place, then too much sodium can certainly lead to high blood pressure and dehydration. And um, you know, for some people, uh, GI distress, particularly if they find loose stools, um, so those are some, some things to consider. Question three, I don't meet many people who are on a keto diet, but the few I have met have no idea what I'm talking about when I ask about sodium intake. Is this mostly an issue for active people? I feel like I have this issue when I have, um, a low activity week. Excuse me. I feel like I have this issue even when I have a low activity week. So assuming this question is referring to uh, the noted symptoms of not getting enough sodium for this person. So in this case, uh, cramping and cardiac arrhythmias. Yes, it does seem to be more noticeable in highly active people. And also um, for people who are eating a properly constructed keto diet or, you know, a whole foods, low carbohydrate diet consisting of things like eggs and meat and fish, non-starchy vegetables, nuts and seeds, avocados, olive oil, maybe some high quality dairy in there. If you're eating those foods, um, there are a couple of exceptions, but you're really not getting enough like naturally occurring sodium in them. If your keto diet consists of, um, you know, a lot of cured and processed meats and cheeses, things like jerky and salami and bacon, then you're going to be getting a good whack of sodium from those foods just anyway. And you won't need to add as much extra salt. So people who have the kind of, have a lot of those um, higher salt, lower carb foods within their keto diet may not be experiencing this um, to the same extent as somebody who is trying to construct their keto diet from largely whole foods and really does need to be intentional about adding extra salt. Question four, any suggestions to help with swollen ankles? What do you think is happening? Should I be using this as a sign that my sodium intake might be too high? Uh, given the amount that this person is consuming, say two to 3,000 milligrams a day, I am not convinced it's a sodium thing. It's possible. You know, you, you could drop that further and see what happens. But, uh, you know, we already did talk about the, the potential downsides of not getting enough sodium. And I think it's probably more a signal that your sodium is perhaps out of balance with water intake or maybe with potassium, uh, maybe pota uh, magnesium, but it's more likely potassium in this case. So when it comes to potassium, you should be shooting for at least three grams a day, probably more like 4.7 grams a day, which is um, 4,700 milligrams. That's the RDA, 4,700 milligrams. And there are some statistics suggesting that something like 98% of Americans don't get enough potassium. You know, now the people that I often work, to work with are probably, um, you know, they may be or likely are within the that 2% of people who are getting enough. Um, but if you're eating a low-carbohydrate diet, you will be removing some of the highest potassium foods. So to give you an example of potassium content in different foods, again, we're looking at the total over the course of the day, adding up to 3000 milligrams to probably ideally more like 4,700 milligrams. So, um, 
one medium baked potato with the skin on is 920 milligrams. One cup of cooked Swiss chard is 960 milligrams. One cup of acorn squash cooked is 900 milligrams. One cup of spinach cooked is 830 milligrams. One cup of butternut squash cooked is 580. One cup of cooked plantains is 660. One cup of either cooked sweet potatoes or parsnips is 570. One cup of mushrooms cooked, depends on the type, but is around 530. Uh, one cup of bok choy cooked is 440 milligrams. One half of an avocado is 360 milligrams. Um, one cup of cooked winter squash, uh, sorry, summer squash, like zucchini, is 300 milligrams. A half a cup of cooked lentils is 360. One cup of collard greens cooked is 220. A medium banana is 450. Uh, a cup of kiwi is 560 milligrams and a cup of cantaloupe is 470. So what's funny there is we oftentimes think of bananas are the best source of calcium. Really, they're not. Um, some of the leafy greens that are cooked or potatoes are going to be, um, you know, much higher in, in potassium, but bananas are, are still a good source. Um, so thinking about those foods and how much they have in relationship to the RDA of 4,700 milligrams especially on somebody who's eating a ketogenic diet, who's, you know, avoiding potatoes and avoiding winter squash and stuff like that. Um, you know, very possible you're not getting enough. And I do think you have to be particularly intentional about getting enough of those higher potassium foods. Um, and also realize that the cooking process can cause potassium levels to decline as well. So before thinking about your so thinking that your sodium is inherently too high because 2300 milligrams really isn't that much um all things considered especially if you're eating lower carb or keto then I would maybe log your food and chronometer for a week to see how much potassium you're actually getting maybe at the same time you add up the magnesium you're getting from food sources and also supplementally as well um because again it could be uh potassium or in theory, magnesium as well. And then I would think about overall hydration. So I would bet that one of these factors, potassium, maybe magnesium or fluid intake are probably more substantial than sodium alone, but they all kind of play in together. And, uh, you could also, I know, I, I think we've talked about this before, um, but you can also think about potential other potential causes of ankle edema, like standing throughout the day and not moving around much. So maybe, you know, if, if you notice that on a day where you're not on your feet as much, or you're, you're just moving around more, um, you know, and the, the swelling is less then that might be kind of a, a clue into what's going on as well. And of course it could be, you know, a variety of these factors. Okay. Last question here. Do ketone levels cause a greater loss of sodium? Do higher ketone levels cause a greater loss of sodium? If so, is the association linear? So from what I understand about the physiology, it's more about insulin and hormones and, um, you know, that hormonal profile that comes from a state of ketosis versus being about the ketones themselves. So when you're in nutri nutritional ketosis, insulin levels drop considerably, which causes a, uh, increased sodium excretion by the kidneys. And we see the same thing happening with things like prolonged fasting again, likely because insulin levels are so low. All right. Um, that's all I have in the context of sodium. Um, any any follow-up questions, please send them in. Otherwise, uh, Stuart Tracy... Anything you guys have, uh, go ahead. Would um, supplemental potassium and magnesium be just as good? I mean, I guess not just as good as the real food, but adequate to balance sodium levels? Uh, certainly, potentially. But the problem with potassium is I believe that you can only get potassium supplements in like 99 milligram tablets. So you'd have to take a lot of them. Um, people are worried about people overdoing potassium, which is, is certainly possible. Um, 
so it would be difficult. I think like some of the, let me just see. I think that calm stuff that I have has potassium in it. Yeah. I'm and trying to look the, it up now. I'm not at home. The the powders, the electrolyte um, drinks are going to be going to be different. So like if you're looking at a packet of, a, of elements that has 200 milligrams of potassium, which is really kind of a drop in the bucket based off okay. of, you know, that, um, uh, let me just see natural calm magnesium. If I can see, and they have different varieties. So I, right. I'm trying to remember what I haven't taken it in a while. So it's usually, just I think it had sodium, magnesium, potassium. This one doesn't, but I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if one of their other products does. This is just their normal one. Okay. And it probably is a, a drop in the bucket or something to, to, that you're at least taking some in at the same time that you're taking their sodium and the other stuff, but not enough that it's going to drastically increase your overall through the day. Yeah. And I haven't seen anything to suggest that it has to be intake has to be at the same time necessarily. We're talking about over the course of time, hours, throughout sure. the day, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask too about blood work that I'm going to be getting soon. Is there any, if you've just had a couple of weeks of uh, like higher saturated fat intake than normal? I mean, typically I think mine's fairly high diet saturated fat. And I've been trying to watch that a little bit more and I would say even more so in the last couple of weeks. Does, is that going to impact a test if I had it this week or next, or is this really just a snapshot of the last six months? And if you no. get it done right after. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, if you, if you're giving yourself a, a week or two of, of dropping it down, it, it should kind of be lipids change relatively fast. Okay. Yeah. So getting it done the next day, it may impact mm -hmm. if you yep. had a big steak dinner, Yeah. but if it's a week or two, that should be plenty to get at least back to what, what baseline is for me. I think so. It's going to be a little bit different for everyone as, as far as what I've seen, like just yeah. noticing how lipids change with diet. But, um, you know, if, if you're giving yourself a week or two, I, I think that's plenty of time. Okay. I'll probably wait till next week. Had, um, some delicious steaks last week, <laughs> oh. multiple times <laughs> along with fatty sausages and tacos and some other stuff. But. <laughs> And why is it too, you were saying as far as saturated fat, that certain things like sour cream, butter, heavy creams, their saturated fat content can impact lipid levels more than necessarily other yogurt, full fat, dairy and cheeses. And it's how meat. the, how the lipids are packaged within the different dairy types. Um, we did a whole, I don't remember if you were here on that day. Um, we did a whole office hours session on on the the lipid um oh what is it called lipid uh lipid globule i don't remember the exact term of it but um the lipid globule being intact versus broken definitely has have plays a role um so we'll we'll link to that office hour session where i went in depth and i talked about the actual study that they looked at uh, in the show notes if if you want more on that but it basically yeah. has to do with the um the the, the packaging of the, the the lipids within the particular dairy products. So something could have equal amount of sat percent content of saturated fat, but in heavy creams, sour cream, butter, it's it could have more of an impact, even than meats. Also, um, I actually don't know about meat. So that okay. that study was only looking at dairy sources. Yeah, I I would. My guess would be that the that based off of how meat is processed, that it would be more similar to something like yogurt versus butter. Mm -hmm. Um, but that that's just my, you know, 
off, uh, off the top thinking. And of course there are different types of saturated fats as well. And you'll find them, you know, different types in dairy products versus beef versus, um, coconuts. So those different types of the, the different saturated fats may impact lipids differently. Where does coconut milk fit in the, how much it has an impact? Mm. We're talking like, you know, the full fat variety, it definitely seems to have an impact, but it mm-hmm. seems to have an impact by raising both HDL and LDL cholesterol versus some of the, you know, th- something like butter might only have or mostly have an impact on LDL. Okay, that makes sense. And that, that's individual as well, but generally speaking, that's typically mm-hmm. what I see. Does bacon, sausage, that kind of fatty stuff, is it high in saturated fat? I could look that up. Typically. But- yeah, you okay. know it's 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 a it's a high higher fat lower protein protein source, right? A- animal source of a protein. So I I think of those things more as a fat source versus a protein source. Um and depending on how the animal was raised and what they were fed, um that will impact their fatty acid profile, but generally speaking, uh they will have more saturated fat than, you know, a, a leaner piece of steak or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also going to be, uh, you know, like really good pasture raised pork is also high in monounsaturated fatty acids. So it may not actually be as high in, in the saturated fats. Um, I don't know off the top of my head, if we're comparing, you know, butter or cream to bacon, what the difference is there. Um, but I would, I would guess the, the dairy fat is going to be the, 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 the fatty dairy fat is going to be higher, um, than something like, you know, pork or, or sausage or something like that. But the, 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 the fattier cuts of, of meat are definitely going to be, um, you know, have some, some amount of saturated fat. Sure. Hoping what I get from butcher box and wild pastures is, mm-hmm. is on the end yeah. of, you know, that are raised and has the more, uh, balanced profile of the fats that, Yeah, I was under the impression, and I think you just said this, Megan, that pork fat has a fair amount of monounsaturated. Yep, especially the, yeah. the good quality stuff. Do you know how much difference it makes? How the, what, I'm sure it does, what the pig eats. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how much different difference it makes, but it is going to make a difference. Yeah, I I never actually saw it, but there was a, I can't get any more because they went out of business, but there was a place that used macadamia or not macadamia. Um, you tell me acorns? Yeah, not acorns, but the one that's popular in Portland where I'm forgetting the nut looks like an acorn. Okay. Hazelnuts? Hazelnuts. Finished oh. pork with hazelnuts. It, it was really good. And unfortunately they didn't survive. They, they went out of business after 12 years or 10 years. So, oh, no. Which was sad. I still have a couple packages of his sausage. So, <laughs> save that for a special occasion. Well, it's been going. I I might hold my down to one or two bat, bat containers right now. So, absolutely. Um. So it's interesting because when you talk about what you what potassium is in each food and trying to get four around four or four and a half five grams of potassium a day, I wonder how I I don't think I ever get there. Um. You know, I mean, I eat a banana a day or a couple of bananas a day. Maybe I eat, I eat a fair amount of meat. So the meat has some potassium in it. Some of it gets destroyed. You're saying some of it gets destroyed through cooking. And I'm wondering, since it's an element, what gets destroyed? How does it get destroyed during cooking? What happens to potassium? It's leached, leached out into like the, the water. Okay. But if you're cooking a burger... Yeah. Yeah. So you're, if you're gently, gently cooking something like meat, um, or, or putting it like into a stew or something like that, um, I wouldn't, you don't really lose it. Like it just ends up in the water. Yeah. You're just it's, talking it's not about like you're cook- boiling beans or, or, you know, leafy greens right, and then right. you, you leave the liquid. Yeah. yeah. And then you don't, if you, I mean, like if we steam greens and then somebody drinks the liquid, then somebody's getting the, the things that end up in the liquid. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't nest, like they don't go off with the steam or maybe some of them do go off with the steam but that's probably minor yeah that's my understanding 
Okay. So, Tracy, it sounds like you're concerned about what your lipid levels will be when you get tested. And I don't, I don't know if I have the right attitude about this or not, but I'm more concerned about my triglyceride levels than I am my LDL. Yeah, no, that's um, fair. And I, how concerned is a definitely a question. I mean, they're, they, they've been higher than what people say are, is ideal. And I know they, they've been on the track of going up, which is never, my, I mean, there's no benefit to them going, continuing to raise is my understanding. My HDL is, is very high. LDL is also higher than it should when be. You I don't say have the numbers H up. Oh, you don't know. Is your HDL over 90? Yeah, it's, it was in the 90s. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's higher than mine. Mine's usually in the high 70s or low 80s. So my HDL is sort of in the right range, but my LDL is, I don't even know, it's off the charts. You know, okay. Doctors see it and go, oh my God, you got to have a statin. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry, I don't want to take a statin. <laughs> and even my doctors are are not, you know, my my traditional Western, the, the, I sort of have two primary care doctors, which is kind of weird, but the, neither of them are overly concerned. Whereas I think 15, 20 years ago, they would have been. I mean, that's just now not what what is relied on as much, those numbers. Um, but it's just something, it, you know, since changing diet has been a fairly substantial jump. And I do have a family history of high cholesterol, heart attacks, open heart surgeries, mm -hmm. and aunts and uncles and grandpa and dad. Um, so just that, that complicates things. Of. I don't, I don't have the heart disease history in my family. So I, it makes it complicated when they say something's an issue and then you also have the history to try and think about yeah. all these different things. It's just like when people talk about it, it's just complicated because it's like, oh yeah, well. <laughs> all right. um, one of the things you mentioned, Megan, in relationship to you were talking about, I'm sorry, I didn't get exactly the details about sodium and, and urination was, and I, my partner has just seems to, go pee a lot she also tries to drink a lot of fluid but she feels like when she doesn't drink a lot of fluid she has other downsides um like she gets headaches if she feels you know she feels like she gets headaches when she's dehydrated i'm not, i say this because that way because i'm not really sure and she like we we go skiing and in two or three hours of skiing she drinks a quart of of fluid um you know two 16 ounce bottles and during that time, if I start out reasonably well hydrated, I drink a couple ounces. <laughs> and it's very different. And of course, you know, you'd sort of expect that if she drinks a quart of fluid, she needs to go pee, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't, do you have any ideas what would be causing her to always seem like she's fighting to be hydrated? I mean, is she adding, is she including enough electrolytes and salt in her? In her we both use elite and we use about twice what they sort of recommend which is not a huge amount of salt but it's definitely right. there she probably doesn't salt her food as much as i do okay. um and it, and at this point she eats way lower carb than i do um i sort of think that i eat sort of based on I, i'm probably I've never really added it up, but I'm guessing I'm around 100 grams of carbs, maybe 125 a day. So it's not like a large amount of carbs, but it's enough to get me some carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And for her, it's not unusual for her to go through the day. And the only carbohydrate she'll get will be from some pieces of fruit. And so it just depends on how much fruit she decides to eat, how much carbohydrate she gets. Yeah. I, I would consider increasing the the sodium to see if that kind of helps with actual like cellular absorption of that water because it's possible and, and there is some uh i haven't looked into it in a while but stacy sims has talked a lot about um like needing a little bit of of glucose or some kind mm -hmm. of sugar to absorb um the the she'll, she'll, water as well she'll pull back against that <laughs> that's fine I'm you know, yeah. but I have, and again, I haven't looked into the science. And in when you say time, a little but... glucose, like if you're talking about a 16 ounce bottle of water, how much, how many grams of glucose would it take? And, I, I couldn't tell you. And is honey a good source of glucose or is it too much fructose? Nah, it's more fructose. Um, maple syrup, I think is what I've heard for that more. That's what like I've a heard homemade well. electrolyte drink, a little maple syrup, lemon, salt okay. and water. 
And other than taste, what does the lemon bring to it that's important? Something Probably. to do. Oh, go ahead, Tracy. I, I thought it was something to do with the the delivery of the uh, of the electrolytes of the nutrients in there. But oh, okay, interesting. Did, don't have info on that. At the moment. Okay. Do you have any thoughts on that, Megan? Um, I can't think of any reason that you need the the lemon. Um, it's not. I mean, I can't imagine it's bad, right? It's lemon juice. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's probably more for, for taste. Um, okay. And also if you think it works better then it probably works better. <laughs> I'm a big yeah. believer in that. If you think what you're eating is healthy, it's probably better for you <laughs> than if you think it's not, especially if you think it tastes good at the same time. If you think it's a chore, then it's probably not better for you. <laughs> there was, I don't remember where I read it. There was somebody who looked at that where they looked at if people thought they were eating healthier, but they didn't actually like the food that it seemed to benefit them less. Oh yeah. There's, there's a whole, a whole science of mindset around nutrition. Yep. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah it's, it's for it's sure. Have the citric acid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it probably right. brings some vitamin C. I mean, depending on what you put in there, it's going to bring you some vitamin C, which is never a bad thing. I, mean, I see no negative to it. I was just curious what the what it does. Is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 it certainly falls under the there's there's probably no negative impact that I can think of. <laughs> this says that this study's authors um, this is on Healthline.com that um, pre-meal intake of lemon water appeared to promote digestion and peristalsis or the wave-like contractions that help move food yeah, okay. through the digestive tract. Yeah. I would think the fact that it's somewhat acidic might be beneficial. There's supposed to be lots of things that are good about lemon water. That, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be critical about lemon water. I'm, no, just, I, I'm just curious. Yeah. Cool. I've since last summer when I think I overdid the or too quickly did and overdid the increasing salt intake and I was taking that magnesium stuff, um, the electrolyte drink. I really haven't gone back to it yet. And in the winter, I don't think I need to as much. Um, but that question, Stuart, of I have all the various symptoms that all point to dehydration, but I drink far more water than my husband or most anybody that I'm, that I'm ever with, like, is there some reason things aren't getting absorbed? The water is not getting utilized. And then the question becomes, you know, has anybody really tried to look at the difference between men and women when it comes to this sort of issue? Sure. Because the system doesn't do a very good job of looking at women. That's where you have Stacey Sims, like women are not just small men. Yeah. Yeah. Her research. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, the first thing I would look at, you know, and, and we talked about this with with Tracy when we were talking, you know, when when um, we're talking about the electrolyte drink, I would I would encourage your partner to add more salt stored just to see what that, you know, what that does. Yep. Um, yeah. Well, and she, you know, she's already used to the water tasting kind of salty. So I just know that yeah. the when I try and add more salt, I think part probably part of it is I don't have a good way of like figuring out how much to add, meaning it just, it, it's pretty tough with granulated salt to go, how much is this, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so, but I'll, I'll play with that and I'll suggest it to her and see if it makes a difference for her. Yeah. And also I will suggest that maybe, and when you say uh, some, some glucose seems to help how much glucose in a, I mean, how many grams of sugar in a, in a, like if we use maple syrup, a few I, gra- five grams in a 16 ounce, a few, three grams, five grams, 10 grams. I, I'm, I'm guessing a couple of grams per eight ounces if I had to, okay. but I, I don't, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. So not a whole numbers. lot. No. A little bit, a little bit might go a long way. I know that um, we used to use for hydration before we started using wheat with no sugar that we used to use the little packages that are distributed by I can't remember which different organizations, which are just a little silver packet that you rip open and pour into 16 ounces or 32 ounces of water. And it's just hydration salts is what they call them or hydration solution. And it's intended to be for like 
poor parts of the world when their kids get diarrhea or something and they give them this to replace it. And it definitely has. I mean, I want, I, I want to say it had 22 grams of sugar, Oh wow! you know, it's but it had significant, like probably more than you need to make it work. But in that case, they're giving it to kids. And so the kids get some energy as well out of it, right? They're not just getting it for cellular uptake. They're, they're getting it for actual, some, some calor, caloric replacement. Mm-hmm something that may get absorbed when their gut isn't working right. So they aren't starving on top of being dehydrated. <laughs> so bad combination. Bad combination. Yeah. Oh, cool. Have you been skiing or snowboarding, Megan? A little bit. Yeah. I try to go once, once a week. Um, sometimes it ends up every other week, depending on workload, but yeah, the, the snow has been good here. So yeah, it, it's it unfortunately like it's... been good in town too. <laughs> oh, have you guys gotten a lot of snow in Denver? Yeah. We had a big snowstorm over Christmas, like right after mm-hmm. Christmas and there's still snow on the ground from that. And mm-hmm. usually it snows, the, the sun melts it, but I think it's, it was right. just so much, like it was probably a foot of snow. And then we recently got, you know, another good six inches in town. Um, so it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Sometimes you see, uh, you see people um, uh, cross country skiing in, in just like, you know, in the neighborhood when, when we get that much snow, it's, it's fun. We get that in town. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. My, my partner who loves to cross country ski, even though she downhill skis all the time with me is uh, like we we didn't really get snow at christmas but we got an ice storm so we had something that it all looked white but it was really about a half an inch of ice and she went out cross country skiing <laughs> on a groom trail or just went out on the ice well this is just in this in Around the city town. yeah it, okay. well you know we live in a in a neighborhood where there's not a lot of traffic on the streets and it, it was just enough snow like that when people drove on it, it broke it up. So she was basically cross-country skiing in the tire tracks in the road. <laughs> so it wasn't really slick like some of the sidewalks were. But hope she has a good pair of rock skis for that. Sounds uh, like it's gonna uh, stretch it, up. You know, there, it was when it's that bad in Portland, nobody drives on it. You know, nobody very few people drive and they don't yeah. put they don't have enough, like we aren't putting gravel down on the road because there's no I mean, we have I, I'm going to exaggerate probably. I think we have two snow plows in all of Portland. <laughs> so, because um, it doesn't snow that often. People yeah. get really upset when it does and it sticks because then there's no, you know, only the major roads get any kind of treatment for a long time. And so if it stays around, everybody's upset. But it's like, come on, guys, you don't really want to pay for this because we don't use it enough. So, standard human American condition. Don't want to pay for it, but I want it. Hey, Stuart, can you send me that, uh, your burger recipe? Yeah, it's been rattling in the back of my brain and it's, it changed a lot recently because I've been playing around with trying to figure out whether or not some of the things I added to it were creating issues for me, but I will definitely try and send it to you. A baseline of it. I'm sure whatever can be uh, taken out. Sorry. I, I, oh, it's not, I haven't, I had actually probably forgotten you by now, but so thanks for reminding me. <laughs> no problem. Thanks. <laughs> I did have another question, Megan, and this may be more, more loaded or a bigger conversation, but your take on the importance of glucose monitoring, continuous glucose monitoring for someone who's not concerned necessarily about being at risk for diabetes and for a, a healthy yeah. Um, yeah, it is a bigger conversation. I think if you can approach the data from a place of curiosity versus fear, a lot of people approach it from like, oh my gosh, I'm scanning my CGM every 10 minutes and you know, I'm, I'm anticipating this big glucose response and I'm worried about it. And therefore I'm getting a larger one. Like there's a, there's a lot of kind of, um, uh, mindset talk to, to preface it. I think it can be helpful because you might find that, you know, um, even within the context of whole, whole food carbohydrates, you might respond really well to, uh, lentils, but not so much to a banana. 
or, or for, for somebody, Stuart might have the exact opposite response. And there is some, um, probably relationship to like ancestry and your gut microbiome that kind of plays into that. So I think it could Mm -hmm. be helpful if we're talking about it for you. Um, it would not be on, or Stuart for that matter, you know, not on my top five list of things to like be considering. Um, but if you were interested in it, I would not be opposed. I think mm-hmm. it can. And, you know, like two two to four weeks max is as much as you would ever need. Um, so the date is interesting. I've worn one. It was interesting um, for a time and I was kind of over it at the end, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is more the curiosity interest. It's probably not something I'm going to put the time and money into now. Um, just been hearing a lot about and looked up some podcasts and learning a little more of them you know, why having non spike, you know, why the spikes in glucose levels are potentially dangerous, harm, harmful, have some harmful effects yeah. beyond just diabetes, you know, immediate diabetes concern. Yeah. And it's important to remember it's, it's over time what's going on. And it's the, basically it's the area under the curve that you're most concerned about. You know, if your glucose spikes high and it stays high for a long time versus you know, I see a lot of MBT clients, for example, who, who will have a higher carbohydrate meal and they'll spike to, you know, 150, 160, but then they'll be right back down to, to baseline, you know, in an hour. And I wouldn't be concerned about that necessarily. Um, you know, if, as long as that's not happening like five times a day. Right. So there's a lot of context that goes into it. Um, and I, I, I see, I see a lot of people fretting about the about the numbers more than they should. And I think that causes more, more harm than good oftentimes. Um, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think it can be a valuable, valuable information. Some, for some people who have sleep issues, um, you know, wearing it overnight can certainly kind of elucidate something going on with glucose, which may be related or or may not be, um, energy levels throughout the day. You, You know, some people have, have issues there and maybe that's due to spiking and then dropping too low. Um, so there are, there, there are definitely, a, or there is definitely information that is valuable from it, um, with a handful of caveats. And aren't there some connections to, or, uh, you know, Alzheimer's chronic disease mm-hmm. and inflammation digestion, like just yep. it, that having multiple spikes that you're maybe not even sensing can play a role in these things. Over time, too many of them you know, a lot of glucose variability, high, high levels over time. Yes. There does seem okay. to be some, some, um, relationship between a lot of those, whether it's cardiovascular disease or neurodegenerative, what have you. Yeah. I will say something I've just noticed in myself since the diet change that wasn't, it's not on my tracking sheet. Something I wasn't really monitoring for is more sustained energy. And being satiated between meals, you know, I get really hungry at mealtime, um, but I'm not hungry, snacky throughout the day. Like I used to be, and just feel like I have more, more stable energy. Yeah. And I, I think that by itself is a pretty good proxy of having at least decent glucose control, right? Usually when there's a lot of highs, a lot of lows, um, kind of this roller coaster glucose effect, most of the time people are, you know, getting to 3 PM and they're super, you know, they're hangry. Um, you know, and then they're waking up in the middle of the night and they're hungry or, you know, starving when they wake up, that kind of thing. So the fact that there's sustained energy, um, and you should normally be hungry for, for food at at Mm mealtime, that's normal. Um, but I think that's a really good sign. I do sometimes wake up hunger, like hungry in the morning or even hungry in the middle of the night, depending on how big dinner was and how late I ate. Because I'm trying to eat a little smaller dinner, eat a little earlier, but then I will sometimes when I do that, wake up hungry in the middle of the night. Yeah. And that, I think that that's, that's relatively normal too. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've never been able to figure out how to eat a smaller dinner. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I, I will not sleep as well if I eat a smaller dinner. So I just don't even worry about it. I just, I might try and eat less carbohydrates with dinner um, and, and like make sure I eat enough other things. So I really feel like I'm satiated. Um, But uh, the other thing I noticed that's really interesting is if I decide not to eat, like if I decide to skip breakfast or, you know, intentionally increase the length of my fast before I break it is I can often go a long, long time 
But the moment I break my fast, I'm starving. <laughs> I'm like, I could eat a horse. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's pretty typical. Yeah, but it's just so funny because you can be moving along throughout the day. And then occasionally I do run into that fasting and I get a flip where my gut just tells me that I went too far, you know, that, that my, I'm massively hungry and then it actually screws up my gut usually. So if I, if I don't have food right when it flips and says, oh, you're hungry, then it's like, uh, I'm not on my own gut or something. That's not good, but that's not common. That's the uncommon one. I had that the other day. I don't even know what happened. It was, I guess I wasn't on a fast. I had eaten early in the morning and I was skiing and all of a sudden at about noon when I hadn't eaten anything since, you know, five 30 or yeah, five 30 in the morning when I ate breakfast before I go drive to the mountain and I got to noon and all of a sudden I was just like, I had to stop skiing cause I was not comfortable. <laughs> it's like, ah, but that doesn't happen. That's, I mean, that's the oddity, not the regular. That's the unusual. And now I try and carry snacks with me when I ski, at least some pepperoni sticks or, you know, a piece of fruit or both. I also try and make sure that when I get to the mountain, I've eaten breakfast two and a half hours before I start skiing or three hours before I start skiing. And I'll just eat, I'll often eat part of a banana and part of an apple and some rice right before I start skiing, figuring, yeah, that's a load of, you know, it's not a ton of glucose, but it's, it's glucose. Maybe it's going to cause a spike, but I'm going to be out there skiing. So my muscles are going to soak it all right up. That's what I'm figuring. And that's when you talk about a glucose monitor, that's the number one thing I want to see is what that looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to see when I think about those things, if I eat and eat whatever it is, a dose of some, of some carbohydrates and I don't exercise, I want to see how bad the spike is compared to when I do exercise. Cause I, I mean, I know it's, everybody says it makes a huge difference and I just want to see what my own body does. And I have the I have the same interest as that Megan was talking about, which is are there foods that I eat regularly that create sort of an unduly large glucose spike due to my own gut? And should I be thinking about different foods? Those are the two things I want out of it. Not uh, I really even if I have spikes, mostly I'm going. Oh, I had a spike. What happens if I do this instead with that food? Do I get a different spike? You know, not like oh God, I got a spike or. You know, what happens if I eat this instead of that? So yeah, definitely for me, it would only be a couple of weeks probably, but I'm very interested at this point. I mean, and I don't know when I'll actually get around to doing it, but it's definitely on my list to do to get some more understanding. So. You have to purchase equipment for that, right? When you say just two to four weeks. You could rent it, can't you? Oh, okay. There, right, I mean, they're, they, they're, they're done after you use them, but you basically buy the... The monitor okay. from a direct consumer company, and then you use their um, like user interface app to monitor okay. and track. Yeah, yeah, because the actual monitor is something that you stick on your skin that after two after whatever length of time you take it off, and it's it's dead. Yeah, ten to yeah. fourteen days, it's it's done. Yep. So cool. All right. Well, I hope you guys have a great week and. And Tracy, I'll try, if you don't, if I don't send you that recipe in like three or four days, bug me again. (laughs) Some of it has to do with it. My brain thinking about it at the time of day when I actually can sit down and go, okay, here it is. So don't hesitate to bug me. It's okay. Will do. (laughs) All right. Have a great week, you guys. Bye guys. You too. Bye -bye. Bye.